Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Most fireflies have chemicals in them that taste really bad. They're toxic. Um, they're similar to the, to the chemicals that some toads have to protect them from predators. So that's why you often have the, the kind of yellow or orange, like red, pink markings on them. That's, that's a warning coloration. And a lot of fireflies will, will kind of share that general um, that general appearance, but when you look beyond the, the superficial similarities, you'll see um, differences in their in their body shape. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Graydon, and this is episode number 138. Do you call them fireflies or lightning bugs? In this week's episode, I'm joined by Richard Joyce to talk fireflies. Richard grew up in the mountains of Costa Rica, went to college in Maine, and then worked for various conservation agencies and organizations before landing at his current position at the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. He's inventoried species of native bees in the dry forests of Nicaragua, collected data on aquatic habitat connectivity for brook trout and other freshwater species in Maine, and participated in lots of community science projects dedicated to understanding and tracking biodiversity. During our conversation, he's gonna fill us in on what makes fireflies so special, why they are a canary in the coal mine, and just how many species of fireflies there are in the US. He's also gonna detail the behavior display that they are so commonly known for suitable habitat and how you can help fireflies with some easy work around the house. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for listening again. Uh, as you heard today's guest, Richard Joyce, and we're going to be talking about, uh, what I think is a really cool and interesting subject, and that's fireflies. You know, I mean, I feel like everyone knows fireflies, or as some of us in Western Pennsylvania call them, lightning bugs. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to be here. All right. So the first question I got to ask is, how did you get into firefly research? <laughs> like, like, how did you decide, like, that's what I want to learn about are fireflies? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, and I would say that as you know, most, most people have, at least on the, especially on the east side of the U.S., have uh, childhood memories of uh, fireflies. And that was certainly, certainly the case for me. Um, but I've always loved insects. And uh, over the years, as I've uh, had kind of a winding path, career path in conservation, um, I've always um, enjoy the opportunity to, to engage in insect research and, and conservation. Um, so I actually have more of a, initially more of a background in, in native bees. Um, and then I landed at a, in a temporary position at Congaree National Park in South Carolina. And this national park is a, 
bottomland hardwood forest. Um, and it happens to be well known for its display of a synchronizing species of firefly. So um, for about two weeks, uh, all my other uh, duties and responsibilities in this position kind of fell, fell to the wayside as we received um, many, many visitors from all across the country and indeed across the world to come watch these synchronized fireflies. And um, I actually had the opportunity to help get some community scientists engaged in getting out there um, and taking observations, collecting data as we as we watch this firefly display. Um, so that was my my first entrance. Um, and then just this past this uh, this past winter, I joined the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, um, and it's it's been a uh, full bore into fireflies since then. Yeah, I'm on a steep learning curve, um, but uh, you know, that's that puts me still uh, at a kind of ex much higher expert level than than most than most folks. Um, well, uh, but I'm I, I'm very I'm still at a, I try to stay humble because I'm <laughs> I'm new to the field and there are folks who uh, I I think of as very humble and you know they've been doing this for 30 years. Well, uh, so I want to start with something that you sort of already said. Um, you s mentioned a synchronized species of firefly. What, what do you mean by that? Like, there's fireflies. There are you saying is that like leading into the idea of like there's multiple species of fireflies? Like, what? I don't understand. I don't grasp that. So um, imagine if um, instead of distinguishing between white-tailed deer and mule deer and caribou and elk. Um, you just call them all deer. Um, that's kind of what most people do with with lightning bugs. So it's it's an entire family of of taxonomic family of animals. Um, and in the United States or in North America, we have um, over 170 species of of fireflies, lightning bugs, glowworms. Um, this this set of firefly uh, beetles that all that all produce light. Um, and yeah, to, to most people, you know, there it's just lightning bug or firefly, but there's a lot of diversity below the surface there. And even in, um, you know, in, in Pennsylvania alone, there are at least 30 species of firefly. Um, Florida has over 50. Um, and in any given spot, especially in the Eastern US, you might have, um, you know, 15 species uh, on a property over the course of a season. So, I mean, are they like when I look out in my yard in the middle of summer, right? Like I love seeing that, right? It sort of lights up and I can see the different ones. Is there, are there multiple species producing that glow at the same time? Or is it like for this number of days, the glows this species and then for this number, of then it like transfers to another species or is it just, are they, do they intermingle like that? So yeah, there's, there's definitely um, distinctions in the, the timing of the species that you see both within an evening and across the season. So there's a species called the springtime treetop flasher, um, kind of a, a funny name. That's one of the earliest uh, species to display and it has kind of a more orange colored light to it. Um, and you, whereas, you know, you may think of fireflies as really getting going in kind of late June, um, early July, you know, around the 4th of July, 
Um, this species will be more like early June, maybe even late May, and you'll see it up in the up in the treetops. The species that most people are really familiar with and is probably the kind of the species from their childhood is um, often called the Big Dipper firefly or the common eastern firefly, Botinus pyralis. Um, and there are a few reasons why so many people are familiar with it. It has a has a big range um, really across um, most of the eastern US and it actually goes, it, it creeps pretty far west into, into Texas, um, even um, the, the Dakotas, Nebraska. Um, so it's, it's widespread. And the other thing that makes it conspicuous and means that it's for many people, the firefly or the lightning bug of their childhood um, is that it, it displays around sunset. Um, so it's already, you know, summer, summer solstice, sun setting pretty, pretty late, but um, they'll, you'll start seeing flashes while you can still, you know, pick out the words on a, on the page of a book. Um, so wait, so it, I, I don't, I want to stop here real quick. Are you, you said during different times of the night. So like that, that lightning bug or firefly that I'm seeing at sunset, I see that flashing and then it may be 10 or 11 o'clock. I see flashing. That might be a, a different firefly too. Yeah, absolutely. So those, um, those dusk displaying species, some of them are really strict, you know, the timing will be um, like almost precision. You'll be like, okay, I know that, you know, these ones are going to turn on at, at 8 PM and they're going to go for, uh, exactly 21 minutes or something like that. And then, and then you stop seeing them and you'll start seeing another species. And you'll know it's a, a different species because um, they'll be giving a different flash pattern. So a flash pattern is kind of a predictable um, series of blinks or emissions of light um, that, that tend to be somewhat predictable. So maybe they'll be, um, in the case of the, the Big Dipper, it might be um, every five to six seconds, you'll get this kind of slow swooping light that kind of dips down and then flies up. And if you take a long exposure photograph of that, it looks, it looks like a J. Um, whereas other species, you might take a long exposure and it will look like um, just like very bright dots um, kind of spread out at given intervals um, huh that and, it, and if you were to catch them you would also you would also notice differences in their in their bodies so a lot of them fireflies uh taste pretty uh, most fireflies have chemicals in them that taste really bad they're toxic um they're similar to the to the chemicals that some toads have to protect mm -hmm. them from predators so that's why you often have the the kind of yellow or orange, like red, pink markings on them. That's that's a warning coloration, and a lot of fireflies will will kind of share that general um, that general appearance. But when you look beyond the the superficial similarities, you'll see um, differences in their in their body shape and um, really getting into the nitty gritty. So I mean. These these fireflies they're not they're not just alive when we see them at night right and they're flashing, um, there has to be like a, a a full circle of life and I'm assuming they're somewhere on the landscape at 
all points of the year um obviously like in the winter they're like most bugs i'm sure not flying around um so i mean what are what when we're not seeing them doing their flashing at night what are they doing where are they at what's the sort of life cycle for you know how long is their life cycle is it multiple years or just a a certain seasons what is that life cycle for fireflies yeah that's a great question i was kind of i I'll chuckle a little bit when I people when I hear people say that the you know the fireflies arrived as if they kind of migrated. I mean, it's not such a it's not such a preposterous question because you have uh, or a comment as you have monarch butterflies and dragonflies making pretty spectacular migrations. Um, but you're right, fireflies are are on the landscape. Um, you know, 365 uh, days a year. But they they're only present as adults for a pretty short period. So for some, maybe as little as as two weeks. For others, maybe up to a up to a month. And sometimes they'll have kind of a staggered a staggered season where maybe the season will last six weeks, but the individual fireflies aren't actually living that long. Um, and like um, say butterflies or. Um, certain other insects. Fireflies have four distinct life life stages. So they go from an egg to a larvae or a base larva, basically a grub. And then they have a short uh, pupa phase where they transform into their adult their adult body form. And then their adult, as as I mentioned, the adult um, the adult stage lasts um, pretty pretty it's pretty brief, so a, a, a couple weeks. So fireflies spend most of their lives as as larvae. So um, this is actually, and by this I mean September. It's a it's a pretty good time to to see firefly larvae if you step out into the forest um, or anywhere there's you know vegetation, leaf litter. At night, maybe after a rain, and you turn off your light and just kind of scan the forest floor. Um, you may see some dots of light, and those those would be larvae of, of fireflies that are that are out foraging. Um, so they don't just produce that light as adults flying around; like they produce it as larvae too. Really? Yeah. So so light does double duty for for fireflies, and and in fact, fireflies um, not all adults um, produce light. Some of them use chemical pheromones to find one another as mates, but they all produce light as in their larval stage. Hmm. And when they're in their larval stage, it's basically acting as as warning coloration, at least that's the that's the the theory. Um, it says, you know, it's it's nighttime, so you can't warn predators that you taste bad uh, with you know red or yellow or something like that. But you can give off light so that if um, if some sort of you know nocturnal predator grabs you, Case you, you may be done for, but it's going to remember that that light, and it's going to think twice before it uh, chomps down on on another glowing color in the in the forest. Oh, that that's wild. So, so the light is a little bit of warning, but it, like, does it have any other use? Yeah. So, uh, so the protection from predators is the is kind of the first purpose that it serves, and then. When when fireflies are lightning bugs for adults, it's their it's their courtship behavior. So 
Um, it's the way that males and females uh, talk to one another, find one another, decide who they want to reproduce with um, and carry out that whole courtship process. So you'll, you'll see the, the males generally flying and uh, flashing quite a lot. And they're basically saying, you know, I'm your species, check me out. Um, I would make a I would make a good parent, um, and then the the females are on the forest floor, or maybe they'll be perched on some vegetation, and they're um, they're kind of surveying the scene. And when they see a male that they like, which basically means they see a flash pattern that um, that fits what they're looking for, and maybe one that uh, flashes a little faster, or a little brighter, or a little longer. Um, she will respond. So she has her own, um, we actually call them lanterns, the light organ of a firefly. So it's her, the, the part of her abdomen that, that lights up. She'll actually point that at a specific male and basically say, you, like I've chosen you. Um, and then they'll, they'll maybe uh, kind of keep talking to each other through their light dialogue um, until they, until they, you know, meet up and, and mate, and then the, the female will go on to, to lay eggs on the forest floor. Uh, that's it. So I, I was thinking like, you know, you mentioned like deer species, right? Like we know that um, for the vast majority of deer species, the males have antlers, the females do not. Um, I was going to ask, you know, is there like one that flashes and one that doesn't as far as male, female for that, but you're saying it's just different flash patterns and way they go about it, that, that you would be able to identify male versus female. Yeah. So some of it is, some of it is location. Some of it is the flash pattern. The female responses tend to be um, a little more subtle and not as involved. So um, uh, an example of a flash pattern, a male flash pattern might be, um, you know, four pulses of light and then a kind of relatively long pause and then another four pulses of light. And the, the female's response may be as something as simple as just pausing for a given number of seconds or milliseconds before she responds. Um, okay, so now that we have this like idea of there's a lot of them out there, um, how they sort of work for the most part, their life history, um, you know, that sort of life cycle. Why, why do we need fireflies? Like other than just, they're pretty for us to look at. Um, I mean, I, I thought of it as I was sort of preparing for this and thinking about questions to ask and things that I wanted to know. I thought, well, yeah, it's a bug, right? Birds eat bugs. Um, I had actually just witnessed uh, this spring, some juvenile robins chasing some fireflies in my backyard. Um, I don't know that they were successful in catching any, but now you're telling me that they have some toxins in them to ward off predators. So if it's not a food source for like birds or, um, you know, frogs or something like that, like, or maybe that's part of it, but a small part, like what is the purpose of fireflies? Why are they out there on the landscape? So it's a, it's a, it's a funny question. And sometimes it's put me in a, um, at a funny contrast from some of my colleagues who work with native bees, um, because you know the 
the explanation for kind of the ecological roles of bees um, we're so much more familiar with and they make a lot of sense to us in terms of you know pollinating both um, plants in the landscape but also food crops that we want to eat. Um, with fireflies it's actually um, it's kind of sometimes I'm like oh well like what's the purpose of music or art um, and but they are performing functions in the landscape. And as you mentioned, they um, they have toxins in them that make them pretty un unappealing to uh, vertebrates. So I actually know from experiments um, that this, this one guy did who had a, a pet thrush, which is like a robin relative, and he would uh, go get bugs from under his porch light and then bring them back um, and then, you know, feed them to the to the pet bird every morning and he once tried feeding a firefly and that was like the one and only time that bird ever um you know wanted to to eat a firefly it, it would you know it tasted it and spat it out basically um but a lot of spiders and um other invertebrates like uh, assassin bugs will eat will eat fireflies and I'd say that a lot of their ecological function, again, when you think about how much of the time they are adults and how much of the time they're larva, a lot of their um, kind of their activity in the ecosystem is happening when they're larvae. And um, they're actually predators. So fireflies are predators and, and some are scavengers, but they're, many are specialized to eat soft-bodied um, invertebrates, especially um, snails, slugs, and earthworms. It kind of depends uh, what group of fireflies you're looking at. There's some that are specialized really to eat snails, um, others that really um, focus on on earthworms. So it's it's not a um, you know like like all predators, they um, probably help maintain diversity and kind of um, stabilize. Uh, populations of of their of their prey levels, uh, the population levels of their prey species, so that we're not kind of like overrun with slugs or overrun with with snails. Um, it, it, you you may ask like, well, we like earthworms, right? Like, <laughs> so it's like, do do we really need fireflies to be uh, you know killing and and eating earthworms? Um, but I think you know the the probably the truest answer is fireflies are doing things in the ecosystem that we we probably have no idea about, and we're still figuring out kind of what some of them are what some of them are eating. Um, some of them some of them are scavengers, so they're you know breaking down uh, material in the in the soil and leaf litter, and they're probably contributing to to soil health. Um, but from a kind of a human perspective, I would say that, that fireflies um, are pretty good indicator species of, um, of habitat health. Um, so, you know, if you have a healthy wetland or a healthy forest, fireflies can be one way of kind of confirming that and, and letting you know that uh, a, a forest or a wetland is in, is in good shape. Yeah, I I definitely had no idea that, that we were going to be talking about a uh, a predator insect species. I, I did not 
see that coming. That was not, um, like I said, I, I sort of assumed that they probably weren't going to be pollinators like bees are. Um, but by, especially by watching, you know, some birds, granted juvenile birds that probably don't realize yet that they don't want to eat this bug. Um, by watching them going after the bug, I thought like, Oh, okay. Like they're a food source that that's wow. Okay. So I got to learn, uh, a pretty big piece of barroom banter information that I'm going to be spreading out there today. Um, you mentioned that they're an indicator species uh, of good quality habitat. Um, what kind of habitat are we looking for? And then, you know, it, what could we do to improve habitat if, you know, like if we notice like, oh, there used to be fireflies here, they're not. What What kind of habitat are we trying to create that would be considered healthy for fireflies? So moisture is actually really important for, for fireflies. So one of the, the trade-offs that fireflies kind of took was that most beetles have kind of hard, um, hard skin, so to speak, a hard cuticle that um, kind of, locks in moisture pretty well and um, makes them kind of resilient to desiccation. Fireflies, their their skin, so to speak, is a little more leathery and, and pliable. And part of the reason for that is that they have these toxins, so they don't need the physical protection from predators. Um, but both as, as larvae and as adults, um, fireflies really need moist environments. So sometimes that's... Um, that takes the form of something, you know, maybe somewhat obvious with actually like wetlands as habitat. So marshes, um, bogs, um, you know, beaver, beaver meadows, all, all great firefly habitats. We actually in North America have um, intertidal firefly species. So in Florida, there's a, uh, the Florida intertidal uh, firefly that's found in mangroves, um, which is just wild. Um, right at the right at the high tide line, in the mid Atlantic, we have the the salt marsh uh, firefly. Um, you know, in the sort of the high marshes of of the coast. Um, so they like moisture, and their prey like moisture. Again, think slugs and snails. What what sort of habitats do slugs and snails like? Um, when you think about the forest species, they still like moisture, but they need, um, you know, often it's that coarse woody debris um, that they're probably doing well with. So that, you know, that big rotting log that's acting in just like a sponge um, and holding moisture even when the rest of the forest is forest floor is pretty dry. Um, so yeah, moisture, moist, uh, moist habitats, and then also moist microhabitats. Um, and then when it comes to kind of buffering the, the effects of humans, um, you want you want darkness. So um, you know it's I've probably heard you know a lot of people say used to have fireflies in the area where I grew up. Now there's too too much light pollution, haven't seen them. That's a that's a common story and researchers um, are are digging into the kind of the details of that and, and learning that, you know, it's, it's affecting different species of fireflies in different ways. 
but and it doesn't seem to affect the dust the dust flying species as much as the um, the species that display later in the evening when it's truly dark. Um, but artificial light, whether it's from street lights or um, houses or signs, um, can really alter firefly behavior in, you know, making them think that it's day and it's like, oh, it's not time to go find a mate um, to drowning out their their signals, um, you know, basically stopping them from from finding each other. A lot of communities are switching like street lights and street signage to LED. Is that, do we know if that's better for fireflies or worse, or does it seem like light pollution is just sort of light pollution to them? Um, I would say that there are, there are differences kind of in the, in the, in the spectrum of light. Um, but there's no real magic bullet. Like the best type of lighting is like as little lighting as possible. Um, when we do our field work and we go out to do surveys, um, we'll use a, like a red red filtered headlamp or some people will use a blue filtered headlamp, um, partly just so that your own vision doesn't, uh, you know, you lose your night vision, but also so you don't disrupt fireflies. Um, yeah, it's it's hard with those with with street lighting because you know what what impacts sea turtles the most isn't what is going to affect the night sky the most, which is not the same as will affect various species of of insects. Yeah, um, but I'd say that you know shield shielding and um, really putting the light where you want it. So you know if you have a if you have a a driveway or a path that you want to light up you know, what's the minimum amount of light that you need for someone to walk down that path safely? And that means, you know, you don't need to light up the tree branches that are 20 feet up or the forest floor that's, um, you know, 50 feet into the into the woods. You just put the light where you need it. And that just doing that makes a makes a big difference. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is like the best light is no light at all. Right. <laughs> but for humans, that doesn't work great. Um, so then let's target the light to where we actually need it and use smaller amounts if possible, you know, less candles. Um, but then even, I, I feel like even like lighting up a walkway, um, there's times in the night where I don't need someone to know where the walkway is, right? If it's 3am, I don't want someone on my walkway anyway. So um, maybe even putting some timers on lights and things like that. So they're only lit whenever you need it for that given time. Yeah, absolutely. Timers, uh, you know, motion detection can, can help. There are a lot of, um, there's a lot of low hanging fruit when it comes to lighting of uh, whether it's shields or timers or um, just little, little adjustments can make a make a big difference and i tell you that you know ever since i you know got into firefly conservation i don't i don't look at uh lights the same way i'll like go outside at night and i'll kind of look at my house and be like okay like you know maybe i should put a curtain like you know put a curtain there so it's not casting light into the into the trees trees over here um so as far as like what homeowners can do outside of light, like, I mean, are there things that people are doing that are detrimental to fireflies? Like, or, you know, 
the way we keep our lawns or insecticides and things like like that probably in in my mind would have an impact on fireflies like it would it be beneficial to allow our grass to grow a little taller um to not use insecticides you know it, like are there things like that that we can do maybe even not raking up your leaves until the spring or so like are there things like that that we can do to sort of help keep the firefly population healthy in areas that the habitat's really not necessarily the best? Absolutely. So, um, you know, looking at the residential level, there, there are lots of things that we can do or, or not do. And honestly, there, there are a lot of the same actions that you would do to help any kind of, um, you know, insect biodiversity on your property, whether that's you know, native bees or butterflies. Um, so, you know, having as, as kind of natural and, and wild of a residential landscape is, is good. Um, and one thing that is a, you know, it's a little different from managing for bees is that, um, you know, the larvae are, um, they're in the they're in the soil and they're in leaf litter and there are some some bees that inhabit those um, those habitats but you know something that gives me a lot of concern is just the use of, of grub killer so you're you know you're taking a an insecticide that's targeting the larvae of beetles and you're putting that into the, ex the exact habitat where the larvae of fireflies are. Um, and, you know, fireflies, it's not as direct as with bees where, you, you know, you plant some wildflowers and bees are directly eating um, off, of, off, of, uh, off of those flowers with, you know, unless you're, I, I don't recommend like ordering slugs and snails and throwing them into your, into your backyard, but um, Maintaining natural uh, vegetation and higher vegetation heights is going to um, is going to hold more moisture in those habitats than shorter vegetation, um, and that's really important too as we as we think about the impacts of climate change and the shift toward um, more intense droughts punctuated by you know really intense rainfall events. That holding holding as much moisture as we can um goes goes a long way um when it comes to pesticides um you know there's there's not a lot of research honestly there's very little research on the effects of fireflies so i would say that um you know we're we're looking at xerces we're looking into the impacts of, of things like um seed treatments in in agricultural areas and how those can leak you know leach into the soil and affect um, firefly larvae. Um, we're also looking at kind of, you know, mosquito control and the, the impacts that um, that those that that spraying has on adult fireflies. Um, this past summer where I was where I was living, there was a, a, a West Nile virus case in a, in a bird. And the city, this was in South Carolina, responded by being like, okay, we're spraying, you know, we're spraying permethrin. And they're like, if you're a beekeeper, like, let us know so we can avoid your area. Um, but unfortunately, you know, mosquitoes and, and fireflies like some of the, the same things and they 
they overlap in the times that they're um, displaying. So thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you manage um, mosquitoes uh, in a way that's, that's holistic and um, not requiring measures that um, are really gonna potentially harm, harm fireflies. Um, and when it comes to pesticides too, you know, a lot of the testing that happens, it's not done on fireflies. It may be done on honeybees or other kind of surrogate species. Um, so it's it's hard to know, you know, how fireflies are affected in comparison to those other species. And the the other important thing to keep in mind is that um, the, those imp those pesticide impacts they're kind of tested in isolation when really fireflies and other insects, um, they end up being exposed to this cocktail of fungicides and insecticides out there um, where it can just kind of stack on top of one another and you can see sublethal effects. So um, some researchers looked at the, the effects of a neonicotinoid um, that's often used for treating crop seeds on firefly larvae. And a lot of them didn't, a lot of the larvae actually didn't die, but they um, they wouldn't feed as much. They didn't build their little soil chambers as much. Um, so they were, you know, dying is a pretty, like not dying is a pretty low bar for what's the effect that we want to have on insects in the landscape. Yeah, I, I find myself, you know, at my house, um, our family cabin property, you know, it, it's like this push and pull with what we're trying to do because I'm trying to be as ecologically safe and sound as I can be right to trying to do everything that I can. Um, but at the same time, you know, to help all various species, but at the same time, you know, like I like fireflies, I like bees, I don't like mosquitoes. I don't like ticks. Right. So like, you know, how do you sort of, you, you just get this, sort of argument in your head of like, what is the best thing to do? Like, how far am I willing to go to try to get rid of mosquitoes or ticks um, without, you know, totally crushing every insect that that's around, um, you know, and, and a lot of times there's a little bit of trade-offs with that from time to time, but trying to figure out timings, um, you know, trying to like for mosquitoes, trying to keep, you know, any water collection sources, you know, dry, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, with ticks, I try to take a little more of an approach of keep them off of me, not necessarily off the landscape. And we own 70 acres. There's no way we can get rid of them on the landscape. Um, so, you know, I know permethrin isn't necessarily the best chemical for insects, but if I spray it on my clothes, it has less of an impact on the landscape than if you would just like haphazardly spray it all over the landscape. So it's that push and pull of just that argument of what is the best thing to do, but still have a what what we would consider now a comfortable lifestyle uh, you know that kind of thing um one thing i i, I sort of want to get sort of to the the as we start finishing up um i want to ask about firefly tourism <laughs> because um i mean don't get me wrong fireflies are cool i don't uh, the idea of like traveling just to see fireflies or a certain species uh i feel like for a lot of people might be low on that bucket list um what is firefly tourism i mean what what's the cool thing about that concept 
to someone like you who studies them? And then what are some things that you're sort of like, eh, maybe it's not all, you know, a hundred percent the best solution. So it's a, uh... Firefly tourism is something that I um, first learned about when I uh, was living at, in South Carolina and um, working at, at Congaree National Park. And it's, a, it's, it's really a growing field. So the, the species that really draw the most crowds are those synchronizing species. Um, so we have two in the eastern U.S., um, one that's come sometimes called the the Smokies, uh, the Great Smokies synchronizing firefly, Photinus carolinus, uh, which is kind of all all uh, kind of up and down the the Appalachians, and then we have one that's called Snappy Single Sink, which is more of a um, kind of bottomland hard, hardwood um, species of the of the southeast. And these species will put on these really beautiful mesmerizing displays where they will um, they will all uh, blink or give pulses of light in unison. So it's it's almost like a you know a holiday light um, display or or something like that. And the species are um, they're different from one another. The the kind of lower elevation species gives a single a single pulse that's pretty quick and um, a, as you kind of take in a field of view there'll be some areas that will synchronize and kind of go in and out of synchrony um, but it, you, you watch it and it's almost like this this full full body experience of like you know it's kind of like music but it's coming in through your eyes um, and then the Photinus carolinus um, gives pulses of about six six flashes of light and then pause and then there'll be a dark dark phase so imagine the um, kind of the entire forest taking on this this luminous rhythm uh, it's, it's hard to describe but it is something that people will travel uh, very long distances to see and and so far you know some of the um, most well-known sites to see these species are in national parks. Um, and that can create issues with, you know, crowds and impacts on the, on the site and both uh, the Great Smokies National Park and um, Congaree National Park have had to switch to a, a lottery system because they were just getting too swamped with uh, thousands and thousands of visitors each night you know, with, you know, and, and if you don't control it, p people come in and they're, you know, using bright flashlights and using DEET right in the display area and, you know, trampling right where the females are. So it's something that um, can have the, the potential to kind of have, an, have a negative impact. Um, but the plus side is that it's, you know, it's actually can be an economic boom uh, boon for for communities, so bringing in um, all those those tourism benefits, and it also just you know introduces people to the the diversity and and magic of fireflies. So um, you actually have a you know a, a firefly tourism event in your neck of the woods, the the Pennsylvania uh, Firefly Festival near Allegheny National Forest. And that's the same species as in the Smokies, uh, Photinus carolinus. Um, but something that I think is pretty neat to see is that 
um, firefly tourism sites are popping up, um, you know, outside of protected areas um, or in smaller kind of less well-funded protected areas, you know, all across the, all across the U.S. And it's, you know, just adding one more reason to protect uh, wild areas and also, you know, helping the, helping the communities that um, are, you know, are stewarding these places. So if any of your listeners are, you know, out in, uh, out in the woods in Western Pennsylvania, in Northwestern Pennsylvania in, uh, in, you know, late, late June, third week of June, uh, you know, you may find this species on your own, on your own property or, you know, on a, on a property that you spend time on. Um, yeah. I, I just, I, I think if, you know, if you take this concept of firefly tourism and it's handled properly, right. Then you have like, especially in a national park setting um, you have park rangers there, people that can control the crowds. Um, so they're not going where they're not supposed to, they're not spraying deep as, as you mentioned. Um, but then also taking that opportunity to be able to explain uh, a lot of the information that you just told me about fireflies, right. There's an education opportunity there. And when people, start to realize the importance that fireflies have on the landscape, maybe then they do change some of their habits at home. And now we have another area that has at least marginally better habitat for fireflies and more fireflies. And, you know, the education is, and really what I'm trying to do with this podcast is educate people on the importance of various subjects so that if you can even just change your behavior, or just know a little bit more, um, you know, it can have a big impact on how we treat, you know, our earth so that it treats us a little bit better back. So Richard, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I know there's still a whole lot of things that we need to discover, right? There's things we don't know about, about fireflies. Um, if someone wants to give back, if someone wants to like help out with discovering more, like what are some things that they can do to, to help out the professional community? Well, I'd say, you know, I'd say, you know, first check out uh, the Xerces Society website. Um, you know, we've been around over 50 years in the, in the field of insect and invertebrate conservation. We're also a member supported organization and uh, donations drive a large part of what we do. Um, but another piece is that Xerces Society and some of our partners um, were, were launching a community science project called Firefly Atlas, that fireflyatlas.org. Um, and that's uh, kind of a, a call out to scientists and whether you're a professional scientist or a, an amateur scientist, um, to go out and, and look for some of these uh, threatened and rare species that Xerxes has, has identified and let us know where you find them, um, you know, what time of year we have a whole, a whole protocol. Um, Firefly Alice also has a, a neat feature where you can uh, filter for a, a species checklist for your state. So um, you can learn more about the species that you, that you have in your in your area um and yeah i would say you know stay 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 curious and you know go out go out into the night and, and see what you find and you'll probably find something that you know 
you want to protect for for future generations. That that's awesome. Uh, so we'll have that link down in the episode details uh, so people can check it out. But uh, like that is this whole concept of citizen science is seems to be gaining a little more steam within the conservation community. And I love that, that idea for two reasons. One, it gives people that have um, a little more than a passing interest in a subject to feel, to be able to contribute to actual science, which is good because there's only so many of, of you professionals out there <laughs> and there's a whole lot of landmass and a whole lot of discoveries that can be made um, if we would just have more people contributing uh, information. So that is great. The other aspect is, that, you know, now that I have a son, one of the things I want to do is I want to provide educational opportunities to him in everyday life, right? So I want to be able to just like when we're outside and it's dark, like he can see fireflies, he can see this, he can see that. And then, you know, I can provide information and I can say, hey, let's go out and like, let's, let's catch one of the fireflies. Like I did that when I was a kid. Um, but I didn't know what I was looking at. There wasn't this wonderful world of the internet that you could find all the information you want. But, you know, with this and with these kinds of initiatives, there's more information out there that's easily accessible. So now I can say, okay, this is what it looks like. Here's a picture from the Firefly Atlas from a list of what's, you know, around us. We can find it. We Oh, that's what type of Firefly that is. So, you know, being able to identify stuff like that, just those greater educational opportunities like that. I, I love the idea of, you know, citizen science and, and those kind of projects. I, I think it's really going to advance our collective knowledge of society and get more people involved. Again, just more education for people. Yeah, it's it's funny. The uh, the author of the, the field guide to um, fireflies, glowworms and lightning bugs um, for kind of Eastern North America. In her book, she, she writes about how kids are, you know, fantastic for, for spotting fireflies and, you know, they have great, great vision. And, you know, I know more than one uh, case of, you know, kids helping find endangered species of fireflies just by accompanying, you know, a, a family member out there and, um, you know, being being curious and observant. So there's, for many species, we don't even know the full extent of their range, let alone how well they're doing versus, um, and, and our partners, uh, you know, looked at those 130 species of fireflies in North America, and more than half of them were like, well, we don't know enough about them to say whether they're doing totally fine or they're endangered. Like all we have is a, a bit of a bit of information and kind of some points on a map. So uh, community scientists and you know just people out on the landscape can can really help us fill in that map and and create a much clearer picture. Well, that's awesome. I, I hope uh, that people listening uh, when they're outside and they see some fireflies that they decide to go to firefly atlas and, and add that point in the map and try to figure out you know catch that firefly try to figure out what it is because um the experience can be so much more than just looking at some flashing lights uh, in the darkness it can you know be that learning experience and and satisfy that human curiosity that we have uh richard thanks for joining me i really appreciate it 
thank you for this information and and some great information I'm going to use next time uh, I'm in some conversations about fireflies uh, around the campfire. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it was great. Great talking to you. Well, I, for one, did not know all of that about fireflies. <laughs> you know, you, you learn something new every day. And uh, today we learned a whole lot. Uh, it's really cool that to think that there's not just one species of firefly, you know, in the United States or even in the eastern United States or even in Pennsylvania. Uh, I didn't know that the, you know, species of firefly that has the, you know, flashing pattern that synchronizes. I didn't know that that was even something I could find in Pennsylvania. So it's cool that to learn these types of things, that there's different types that when you catch them and look at them, they're different. You know, this is such a, a common insect that's out there that I feel like all of us at some point in our childhood has caught in our hands and and looked at it and maybe put them in some jars to keep them for a couple of days. Uh, you know, to be able to really learn and dive into some of the stuff about them and um, how they love moisture and how just doing some very simple things around the house, like actually not doing work or, you know, and providing some sort of, well, you know, a little bit more moist areas uh, around your home, you know, you can have more fireflies. Uh, that's just great to know. And, you know, it's something that we need to keep an eye on because they are that canary in the coal mine of just sort of climate change and habitat change and things like that. So this was great information. I really want to thank Richard for coming on. Uh, it was great to hear about fireflies and just get to learn, you know, about this common insect that I didn't even know was a beetle. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get outside, take someone with you. And as always, stay wild.